Hi there, this is Ann Angela Webb, the Animal Intuitive. I wanted to make sure that you knew about my free intro to telepathic animal communication class. It's called Unlocking the Secrets of Telepathic Animal Communication. And you can get the class by just going to my website, intuitivetouchanimalcare.com, and heading on over to the courses page. Also, if you would like to watch this episode or to check out my extensive video playlist, use the link in the description for the Animal Intuitive channel on YouTube. Come on, all you doggies, won't you walk with me? I'm the puppet, 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 puppet dog. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Animal Intuitive channel. I'm Ann Angelo Webb, and our usual focus is on supporting animals and their caregivers. And tonight is really no different in that we have to think about how can we give animals a voice in every way possible. So those of us who cherish the bond between humans and animals must recognize that understanding the root causes of violence towards both humans and animals is essential to figuring out ways to help prevent future violence and protect the innocent. Our esteemed guests tonight, Dr. Ann Burgess, Dr. Catherine Ranslin, and Dr. Gary Brucato have dedicated their expertise to understanding violence against humans and have contributed significantly to understanding its relationship to violence against animals. They have gained invaluable insights from human victims of violence and by direct access to the minds of many violent criminals. Together, this panel also forms the Extraordinary Coalition as they are all consultants with the Cold Case Foundation, whose mission is to raise public awareness and create partnerships to assist and provide law enforcement with whatever resources are needed to bring closure to unsolved cases. Our panel members have become sought-after featured guests and major media outlets, and tonight we have an opportunity, an incredible opportunity, to explore these topics and also talk about early warning signs, how to recognize potential indicators of future violence in children, and possible intervention strategies for children and adults with these different behaviors that we're going to talk about. And join us as we delve into the shadows, focusing on shining a light on the path toward, dare I say, possible hope for change. I do want to mention a trigger warning. Some may find this content disturbing, so I encourage you to prepare yourself emotionally beforehand. And if you believe that you will find the discussion too traumatizing, you may choose not to watch. Before we begin our discussion, or traumatizing at all, don't watch. Before we begin our discussion, I want to take a moment to tell you a little bit more about each of our guests. And I'm just going to check the, yes, I'm not getting anybody telling me they can't hear me. I wanted to just check on that because we do have some people in the chat and we'll say hello in just a moment. But I want to introduce our guest. So I'm just going to go through an order of, not in any particular order, but acquaint you a little bit with the people that we have here on the panel. Some of you are familiar with them, but some of you who, who usually come to watch things about animals may not be so. There is much more on their list of accomplishments than I have even time to mention in this introduction, but please check out the description afterward below and go and look at their books and other publications and the links I have there for them. So let me start with Dr. Ann Burgess. She is an internationally recognized pioneer in the assessment and treatment of victims of trauma and abuse. She is the author of an extensive body of work, including best-selling books such as A Killer by Design. Murders, Mind Hunters, and My Quest to Decipher the Criminal Mind. Many of you may be familiar with the Netflix series Mind Hunter. Dr. Burgess is the model for the character of Dr. Wendy Carr, 
as Dr. Burgess played a significant role as a consultant with the FBI's, FBI's behavioral science unit in putting their early in their early criminal profiling efforts. Dr. Burgess worked with the FBI Academy special agents to study serial offenders and the links between child abuse, juvenile delinquency, and subsequent violent behavior. As a distinguished author, researcher, and clinician, Dr. Burgess is a trailblazer in forensic nursing, having significantly impacted the understanding of trauma research and victim advocacy. She is a professor at Boston College, teaching courses in victimology, forensic science, forensic mental health, case studies and forensics, and forensic science lab. And Dr. Burgess has been given the honor of living legend by the American Academy of Nursing. Dr. Catherine Ramsland is a seasoned professor, forensic psychologist, and renowned expert in the field of criminal justice. She is the inaugural director for the Center of Teaching Excellent, Professor Emerita at DeSalle University. And Dr. Ramsland is the author of more than 1,500 articles and 68 books, including How to Catch a Killer, The Psychology of Death Investigations, and The Mind of a Murderer. She worked with the BTK serial killer Dennis Rader on his autobiography, and Dr. Ramsland currently pens the shadow boxing blog at psycholo- on Psychology Today and teaches seminars on extreme offenders to death investigators and homicide detectives. Dr. Ramsland trains law enforcement professionals and speaks internationally about forensic psychology, investigative psychology, jury dynamics, suicidology, and extreme offenders. She has also assisted and co-written books with former FBI profilers such as John Douglas his, on his book, The Cases That Haunt Us. She also co-author, co-authored The Real World of a Forensic Scientist with Elaine M. Pagliaro and renowned forensic criminalist Henry C. Lee. Dr. Gary Bricado. Dr. Gary Bricado is an accomplished clinical psychologist, researcher, and expert in early psychosis, severe violence, and personality disorders. He co-authored with Dr. Michael Stone, who recently left behind an esteemed legacy, the book, The New Evil, Understanding the Emergence of Modern Violent Crime. He has published over 100 articles for peer-reviewed journals on psychotic illness and violence, two books and multiple book chapters, and contributes articles to Psychology Today. Dr. Bricado is regularly consulted by investigators, families, and clinicians seeking his expertise. He is in full-time private practice, in New York City, conducts psychological and forensic evaluations, provides expert testimony in criminal and civil courts, and co-created the Columbia Mass Murder Database. Dr. Bricado is a visiting scholar at Boston College, where he collaborates with Dr. Ann Burgess and Dr. Victor Petreca on forensic research. Welcome, everyone, to the show. Good to be here. Listening to that, I'm so tired. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I'm so glad people are are still here hanging in. Let me let me just check into the chat. Hello, everyone. Hi, missing stolen animals from Ireland group. It's good to see you all here. I see that people are very excited. You've been following the work of our three guests, and you want to say a big thank you for hosting this panel. Well, I'm I'm very grateful that they're here. Hi, Miss Aries. Thank you for being here. And I hope there's not an echo. I'm suddenly hearing. Is anyone else picking up an echo? Anyone else picking up an echo? Yes, I hear it. All of a sudden, and then it stops, okay? All right. Uh, <laughs> hi, Cheryl. Thank you. Yes, we have to be concerned about the kids and what we can do, maybe. So we're going to talk about that. And, okay, yeah. So 
I'm sure, with the Missing Stolen Animals Ireland group, through the work you do in your Facebook group, you've been witness to different accounts of cruelty and violence towards, sorry about that being up high, dogs and cats and horses. As these cases increase daily, we must look at the link you mentioned. Yeah, so important. So we can ask questions, feel free in the chat. But let's let's move along and you know let's let's go on. I just want to lay some foundation here and ask the group to clarify for everyone the meaning behind the diagnosis of antisocial personal personality disorder versus psychopathology and just to provide any thoughts that you have about the fact that we have this sort of division about those those terms. Do you mean psychopathy? And what did I say? Psychopathology. Oh, sorry. Psychopathy. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. Yes. I I can address that if you'd like. I wrote about that that, uh, whole section on how to distinguish those uh, in the New Evil. So you want to understand that psychopathy, which is a constellation of personality traits that have to do with a kind of amorality, a tendency to be kind of bored and sensation-seeking, a glibness interpersonally, taking advantage of others uh, without much remorse, being charming, etc., was described. I mean, historically, there are people who talked about these features, but it was really systematically described by Keckley in a book called The Mask of Sanity, and then described more fully by Hare, Robert Hare, who was a prominent Canadian psychologist, and uh, he developed the, the the famous checklist, the psychopathy checklist. What wound up happening really, and I mean, the short version of it is that when the DSM was being written, the, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, there was such a movement to make medical and objective diagnoses that they removed the aspects of psychopathy that are not really objectively observed, but are felt by a person. And as a consequence, a lot of the key features of psychopathy that people like Hare had identified were sort of set aside, and you wind up with a somewhat watered-down version of a condition so that people who have antisocial antisocial personality disorder can can run the gamut, right, from very high-functioning, you know, kind of politicians or lawyers or people like that or or people who are engaging in things like, you know, knocking over the deli and holding, you know, r- r- killing somebody who's a witness, except all the way up to the most extreme psychopaths who engage in torture repeatedly or, or murder. And it's a, it's a very problematic diagnosis for that reason, I think. So that I think when you look at the at the the personality structures of these people, you want to envision a spectrum that kind of runs from narcissism through to varying degrees of psychopathy into ultimately sadism, which I think we're going to be touching on a lot in talking about animal abuse. I think it's really sadism that you start thinking about hurting animals. Okay, and so maybe just to start out, what are what are some identifiers that people might recognize if they just had someone in their life day to day, someone they worked with that might be somewhere on this scale or spectrum? How might you recognize, like, are there certain red flags that people could help identify them or make them stand out even when they're not doing something, you know, obviously sadistic or just, or not at all? Is it, 
No, deceptive, manipulative, callous, without remorse, unmotivated cruelty, things like that. Breaking promises. <laughs> yep. Okay. And, you know, what have you found in your work and in your studies? And, you know, of course, kind of putting these questions out to anybody to answer for in in any whoever wants to jump in, but what per, what portion of those that might have antisocial personality disorder or, or whatever we want to say would be, what estimate would you have those, of those that would act out violently? Well, I know that they've done some studies. I can only speak to more from a developmental standpoint. I find it helpful to look at, are you talking about a child who is, say, just school age or a teenager or a young adult, et cetera? And when does it start? I think that that's kind of, of, of important to, to look at. And what is it? What is it that you're, you're looking at? And what, where do you begin to get some complaints? I, I can think of a, of a case that I'll tell you at the end who, who, which serial killer it was, but what would a parent do, say, who comes home every day after work and has these lovely fish in a fish tank and finds a few of them, up, you know, floating at the top of the, of the water and cleans it up. Then the next day it's the same thing. So, Again, that's a very simple kind of a example. When does somebody get concerned? And that isn't even looking at a cat or a dog or, you know, the, the other kinds of things they can do, but just fish. Somebody's killing the fish. And how do you find out? And how do you investigate? And who do you go to? What should a parent do? Right. And that's definitely something I, we I, want to talk about. So, oh, go ahead, Dr. Ricardo. No, probably, no. I, I was just going to, I was just going to add that, that, we want to remember that antisocial personality or psychopathy, whichever we're going to discuss, these are things that would really date all the way back to childhood. A, a personality disorder doesn't just erupt when a person is 18, right? They're, it's going to be there a long time. And when we, when we ask the question about predicting violence, you have to ask what kind of violence? If you're talking about serial homicide, well, you can't do much better than to ask the people here. I mean, I mean, Anne, for example, was very instrumental in the project that helped to to make household knowledge out of some of the childhood antecedents. And and one of the key things we'll see is fantasy. A lot of these people are experimenters and are curious about living things. And we can start to see hurting animals, for example out of a strange intellectual curiosity about what's inside of them or what happens to them when you hurt them. And then you get the type that's more interested in seeing it suffer. But but the point is, and I think it would be really interesting to hear Anne and Catherine talk about this from some of their encounters, people who've done this, is you know that there's a kind of projection onto other people or animals or or, or both, feelings of having been made to feel humiliated or out of control or or so forth and then so it's all about a kind of assertion of domination control manipulation that seems to have its roots in childhood and then as a person ages and i guess goes through more stressors and gets older we finally see this explosion and this escalation into acting out those fantasies and and I, so that's like the pathway to that kind of violence. But then we see psychopathic people committing all kinds of other violence, but there isn't necessarily a serial killing component. That's why I think there's a very wide spectrum. 
And I mean, Catherine and Anne, I think you'd agree. I mean, we've seen the whole gamut of, of, of cruel behaviors. One final point I'll make is that it's very characteristic of people who are psychopathic to have what Hare called criminal versatility, which really means that you don't just hear about them doing one thing wrong. When you hear about somebody being a serial killer, you might find out that they were also writing bad checks, robbing banks, you know, looking at illegal pornography, you know, hitting a, a, a spout, you know, et cetera. There's just a whole array because the amorality is, is so all-encompassing. Yeah. And, you know, when I, in just doing research for this topic, I was looking at the, uh, the link coalition has a really good list of sort of statistics. I'm not going to sit there and read all, sit here and read all of them, but it does talk about a hundred percent of sexual homicide offenders had a history of cruelty towards animals. 70% of all animal abusers have committed at least one other criminal offense and almost 40% of committed violent crimes against people. But they talk a lot about witnessing violence in the home as children and and that being a major is- issue. So I know that, you know, we're also kind of getting into the the younger years version when we talk about maybe conduct disorder and what kids fall into that category and the callous and emotional traits. Maybe we could talk a little bit about that what in detail. I know we kind of we touched on it, but but what goes on? Where's the cro- where's the where do things get crossed where it becomes let me, you know, I've seen these things in my home. I've had trauma in my life. What, what, at what point does it cross over to? I'm going to take this out on an animal. Well, the obvious one is that the animal's the, the more helpless creature in the home, and that maybe they've been abused. The kids have been abused. They have nowhere to turn, so the animal is the easy target, and they take out their frustrations on the animal. That that sometimes can happen, or they are beginning to have fantasies. They're they're not sure about where to go with it, and they know the animal's not going to talk. So the witness, the, if the witness survives, the witness isn't going to say anything to anybody. So it's it's fairly easy for them to turn to the animal to do that, or they're doing experiments on the animal, like Dennis Rader would. He liked bondage. He would tie up dogs to watch them struggle. He didn't think that was abusive. He didn't think he was doing anything to them. That was was negative, but he wanted to see their terror because it made him feel more powerful. Yeah. Well, the, the Iceman did that with cats, if I remember. He'd tie their tails together and then see what they would do. So that the ability to orchestrate, if you will, their own little sadistic scenario is, and they get a lot of pleasure out of that. I think that's the point I think you're trying to ask us about and is the uh, when when does it become a a work a a something that should be reported or something that you should be concerned about i read some statistics where you can have some of some of this is quote normal i'm just quoting i don't know what study they did but that a lot of kids will do things to animals and in the service of trying to, I don't think they think it's abusive, but to get a reaction out of the animal. And in some way that seems to get a reaction out of them. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. We all know that the McDonald triad, you know, that was supposedly so predictive of committing these kinds of offenses, you know, fire starting, bedwetting, and animal torture. I saw recently a pretty exhaustive meta-analysis that tried to ask the question of whether that actually predicts anything. And it turns out that it does only if you have two of them, two or more of them. It's not adequate to have only one. So the, 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 I guess the clinical takeaway from that would be you wouldn't be horribly alarmed by hurting an animal alone. But if you're additionally doing one of those other things, then you start getting a sense of a disinhibited, angry person who, you know, is asserting power in this way. I, I think, and then Catherine, would you agree there have been cases of offenders doing this even as small children? I mean, children and teenagers, there's no clear time it starts, right? Because I'm aware of cases where they were six, seven, eight years old doing things like that. And I'm certainly aware of teenagers who start doing it. Anyone know an average age? I, I've seen it all over the map. I don't know. I, and I think the pr part of the problem is the kids admitting to doing it. They either have to be caught or they have to voluntarily admit. But I think a lot of them would keep that secret. Mm-hmm. In, in the case of the boy that in Michigan that was recently convicted for the mass shooting, Crumbly, Crumbly, the parents are, you know, in some hot water, you know, being involved in him getting a firearm. One of the things that I found very haunting about his story was that he had brought, reportedly brought the decapitated head of a bird into school in a small jar and left it in the bathroom, I think, for other students to see. And there's an incident which has not yet been tied to him, it may never be, where the children were playing in the schoolyard, and then there was a thud, and the severed head of a deer came rolling off of the roof and just sort of plopped into the yard. And, you know, if he is responsible for that in addition to the bird, I think, again, you start to see, you know, this incredible provocative haunting kind of expression of anger and, you know, of, of a person who's trying to say, you know, don't mess with me, you know, because it's really very creepy. But I also think that there's an oddness to some of these people because there is that detached experimental quality. Some of these people will talk about dissecting animals simply to like the way a scientist would. You know, that they, they they keep notebooks or, or record, you know, this is what happened when I did this to this animal. And then they apply it. They try to apply it later to people. And um, but but what I just wanted to stick in here is a is that there also sometimes is a very clear pattern where we can see a child being abused and then they go out and hurt animals and then they may apply that to a human being, you know, and you sort of watch the the pattern. And in fact, a little later, I'll talk about a case where that very clearly happened. But I think the key may be that a lot of them are physically abused themselves. Anne and Catherine, would you say there, there does appear to be some relationship between corporal punishment, humiliation, being physically abused or sexually abused, and then hurting the bodies of these animals? But it may not be a clear correlation. The friendly case is interesting because that's more a case of neglect and reactive mm -hmm. anger. Whereas, I mean, the parents had horses. It's not like they were mm -hmm. animal abusers themselves. They obviously loved their horses because they were out with the horse rather than their son in you know, some of these occasions. So that's an interesting and complex case. I don't know that he was abused so much as the neglect, neglect. made him 
angry mm-hmm. and he's reacting. Yeah. The the other thing I think it, it matters as who is the animal? Is the animal a pet of theirs? Is the animal belong yeah. to a yeah. You know, are they trying to harass the neighbor and do things? We certainly have examples of that. Or is, is it just a stray? Uh, all of those things can need to be put into for if you're going to be looking at the impact. Yeah, and I because Raider had a dog that he loved, but he would hang cats in the barn, approved by his grandmother, who didn't like cats. So that to him was not abuse. It was, that's what she wanted. And yet he did certainly have feelings for a pet dog, several pet dogs that he had. Yeah. yeah. There were also serial killers who talk about that it was a, a kind of a bonding ritual, something that made them feel virile when their father, for example, would take them out hunting. That hunting is something else that figures into it for a lot of these guys is that, that it may not be enough to just have an animal in front of you that you're abusing, but there's the excitement and the thrill of running after it and having it be helpless and, and trapping it. And so that, and then you start to see that played out later with humans. And so, so I think that's another, I mean, this is not to disparage everyone who haunts. I simply mean that in these cases, it can take on a very dark meaning. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, yeah, I see some people in the chat are kind of related to what you're saying there. Mm -hmm. If an adult in the home kicks and beats an animal, the child sees this as okay. Then as they get older, could it move from animals to humans? They're wondering. Well, it could. It doesn't necessarily. I mean, one thing we do see that just because kids are abusive to animals in their teen years doesn't mean they'll go on to keep doing that in their adult years. So they do often outgrow it. But so, yes, they're asking, could it be? Yes, it could be. I don't know what the percentage would be, though. And also the questions coming here. Would it be helpful to teach children from an early age in schools? It seems especially in Ireland, children learn from peers how to treat animals. I know in, in some places when you're trying to treat juveniles who have committed really aggressive acts that they to try to teach them more compassion and so forth, they see if they can care for for animals. I don't know of any specific program, but I, I remember hearing, and I always thought that was quite interesting because they could watch that with supervision and they saw the 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 person it sounds like it's more boys than girls this is not necessarily this is more gender related to males so it is the question what if a parent or somebody in the home witnesses if or is a child witnesses an adult in the home right well that's complicated because if the if the adult is doing it and can say well i'm just making the the dog behave or whatever the issue is it, and doesn't explain it to the child, sure, that can be an issue of repeating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, I'm wondering what you do think about, I mean, I know that there are these programs now that they're training programs, they kind of call them, they have all these different types, but they're all sort of the same design, focused on children who seem to have these issues early on, where you're focusing more on warmth and reward-based parenting and teaching this is the way to parent as opposed to, you know, the opposite sort of punishment-based because there seems to be some information that there's these kids, if they have this, if they really have 
you know, as children, they're going to maybe become adults who would have maybe ASPD, that they don't respond to taking things away or, you know, negatives as far as like punishment based. Have you seen that in your work that there's in the people you've spoken to and think they don't respond to that? I think you might be talking about children at risk for being becoming adult psychopaths who might yeah. in fact be born with a certain brain condition that involves callousness, emotional blunting, and not responding to any kind of behavioral controls. So I think that might be what you you're talking about. And and so that's difficult and requires, I think, very intensive one-on-one kind of of training. But whether that would end up being becoming animal abuse, I mean, it's certainly not a given that it would. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'm wondering from the individuals that you've, any of you have spoken to, does that kind of ring a bell from what they've talked about? Like, just not really getting punishment based, and I don't mean punishment even necessarily like hitting and things like that, but you know, non reward based. Yeah responses to things that these kids have done wrong you know or instead of it being like a positive like oh you get rewards for doing good you instead they're getting in trouble for doing doing, sorry i'm going to echo again for some reason i don't know why but does that ring a bell from the individuals that you've spoken to that it just didn't work for them it didn't well well i've had some experience where a teacher will get concerned about a child's behavior in the classroom and will want to have some kind of consultation on it. That's one way. I don't know what you're talking about. but Well, I mean, more like it it seems like there seems to be some indication that kids who maybe are showing signs that maybe down the line as adults, they would be growing up to have what would be called antisocial personality disorder. It's kids with maybe they're being diagnosed with conduct disorder, for instance, that they respond best to reward-based and they don't, they kind of don't get the traditional form of like, for some reason, the word slipped in my mind, not negative, but when you... Reinforcement to... Negative, yeah, like... like Punishment. Well, well, it's... Punishment, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's important to remember that when when we're disciplined, what what's really happening is a fear response in the brain. It's like an amygdala brain reaction, right? And and then we sort of it imprints on us. It says like don't don't touch that stove again, you know. And those of us who, you know, if you have a kind of functioning conscience or morality, moral compass, you might also learn by empathy and kind of seeing that you've or compassion or had an effect on another person that hurt them. But imagine an individual that doesn't really have an appropriate fear reaction and that same blunted emotional aspect makes it difficult for them to feel guilt or empathy or compassion for another person. How would a person like that learn? Well, they would learn basically from a totally transactional relationship with somebody where if you want this, this is what you're going to do. If you don't want this to happen, this is what you're going to do. And you see that I've seen it more in in interventions that are designed for offenders, where it's like, how do we get them to behave in a prison setting? 
and you know and 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 you know even in psychotherapy for example when it's utilized in that setting one of the things you learn is is that they learn to mimic the compassionate insights that the therapist teaches them and then to use them transactionally to get what they want like to sort of act kind to to get privileges or to seem like you're you've gotten healthier or gained insight and um so they think it 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 becomes very transactional because it's just not going to be about fear and you know that that's the whole thing in fact for some of these guys getting in trouble and chaos and so forth can actually be the closest they come to getting really excited I mean, it, you know, can almost take on a masochistic quality with some of them. You know, uh, oh, I almost got caught engaging in some highly sexualized, inappropriate. We certainly saw that with Raider, Catherine. Uh, I don't know if that's something you you want to talk about, but I but I think there is that that quality of drawing your excitement from the ever increasing risk taking, partly as a way of dealing with that numbness. That, that shrieking numbness that they experience about everything. Because imagine walking through life unafraid and not really caring much about anything is, is a difficult inner experience. Yeah. You know, I'm, I guess I'm wondering, what do we think is, or, you know, where are you all at and what your, your research as far as what leads to this? Is it just the brain abnormality combined with the trauma? Like what... What are you finding is the pattern or is there any, is it just all over the place? Well, there's no formula about any of this. And I think it's each case has its own developmental trajectory, its own triggers, its own influences. And so to, to try to box it into some kind of, is it nature or nurture, just doesn't really serve any purpose in terms of really treating somebody. What we want to be able to do is see what are the early signs in any particular individual and how that, what kinds of resources do we have to be able to intervene in an early point. It doesn't, I mean, it doesn't really much matter what's the percentage of nature and nurture. It, it really matters what are we doing with these individual cases. Someone in, and that makes sense. Yeah, I, I would just add that it's very hard when you want to get at what the thought is going on in the person's mind that was activating the behavior. And that's a, that's the hard part is how do you find that out before the behavior happens? Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And there's a shame because some of these guys, if they had been treated a little better by the world, you wonder if they're sensation-seeking, fearless kind of quality might have been used pro-socially. This might have been the kind of person who would, you know, hurl themselves on a grenade to save a platoon, you know, as opposed to somebody that, that needs to go out and level the playing field because, you know, people have hurt them. In fact, all across history, people with psychopathic traits have been leaders and, and um, people that have been very sexy and attractive and powerful and all that. And I think that's because it's a, you know, if the person's on your side, all that fearlessness and so forth would be very strong and make you feel safe. It's only when it's utilized in an antisocial way that it's terrifying mm -hmm. to, to have a human predator like that, right? But, but we forget that, that those traits can be utilized in different ways. And, and I think you see that sometimes. And, but what's even more confusing is you could have two kids that grow up in the same house, exposed to the same stuff, and one becomes psychopathic and the other one is almost pro-social. And then you, 
you, you don't know how to make sense out of it. And I think uh, to, to Catherine's point, there is a growing body of evidence where you could do research like this. There is a growing body of evidence that they, some of these people actually have brain abnormalities. There are different, there are different sizes to the amygdala, the, the frontal lobe, the connections between them, sometimes even an absence. There can be, you know, and it, it, some of them have been head injured and then completely change after they have those injuries. And I think that's a very uncomfortable model because it makes people think that you're calling it a sickness or you're taking away the moral question. But I think when we start applying that kind of stuff, we miss the point that these are not mystic, these are not mystical people or like, you know, they're not walking around like the devil and red tights. They're within the realm of what could happen to a human. I mean, wouldn't you say, Anne and Catherine, that's almost what's scariest about them. Sure. Yeah. Yes. <clears throat> yeah. And we have some people in, okay, in the chat. Do any, yeah, I think you're asking about the, if there's an animal abuse registry in their states. I think actually oh. if you, they have in different states. I d they're asking if you know if there's any in your state, if this is an important tool. This is someone in Ireland asking if if this is an important tool to prevent further cruelties to both people and animals. Well, there's no mandated reporting, even for clinicians that I'm aware of. Uh, we're not mandated to report animal abuse. child abuse, of course, things like that. But animal abuse, no. To my knowledge, do you know, Anne and Catherine, have you ever heard of mandated animal abuse reporting oh, and i even looked up uh, on aces you know adverse childhood experiences whether it was listed and i think really as i got into how many of our school shooters and other things have a history yeah. of this it really should be listed there i don't know why it could be because that's such a i think it's a red flag but I don't know of anything, uh, certainly not mandated that I know of, unless you're, well, wait a minute. I, I guess I have some on, you can't do some fights, rooster fights or something. You can't, what, what is that one? Cockfighting yeah, and things like fight. that. Yeah, yeah I, I, I think at that level, but that would be for profit. You know, unfortunately, uh, we've had this discussion on the show and I am blanking on that. And I know that <laughs> that it's definitely been, advocated for and i know we've had a couple people who have talked about it and i i can't remember there's some there's something to that where they're trying to get something going at the very least and but i just can't remember we talked i had somebody on a f in december from animal victory you might want to check that episode because i think we talked about it there but and what was i going to say about that if you, I know that I've gotten, oh, something came into my email that it, it was talking about, for instance, vets. It was a conference that was coming up and talking about this very thing that potentially having veterinarians and, and some other people in, in the animal world become mandated reporters for, for animals. Oh. And it completely makes, I mean, it's it's ridiculous that they're they're not. I mean, it's it's crazy. These animals, especially with vets, like they're they're in your care, just like a doctor who would have a child come into their care. Of course, they should be mandated. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't. Oh, well, I I think it. You know, the, the, it's even more horrifying when you realize that we're talking about the physical abuse or killing of animals, but there are also sexual abuses of animals. Yeah, and you know, and, and these are things that you know offenders. We'll talk about, and uh, you know, I mean, that's like 
it's hard to even say out loud. It's it's mm-hmm. so disturbing. Uh, I will tell you from the mass murder database we did that animal assault was actually extremely rare in people that commit mass murder, which I don't think would be too surprising because the vast majority of people who commit mass murder are not really psychopathic or motivated by sexual fantasy or any of that kind of stuff. It's a very different kind of person. But there are about 11.78% of mass murderers who are actually serial killers. They've killed previously or later. For example, Dennis Rader that Catherine has known and written about is a mass murderer in the Otero case, for example, is a mass murderer who is also a serial killer. And he is someone who assaulted animals. He's in our database as a mass murderer. And but so there seems to be a very uh, to me in in my work there is definitely a closer relationship with the personality structure of a serial killer than a mass murderer or a spree killer or someone of that type. And in fact, I think it's almost a hallmark a little more. Uh, does that jive, Anne and Catherine, with your sense of things that it would be less common in a mass murderer? Yeah, although I, I will say uh, mass murderers often have rigid personalities, and you have an animal around that doesn't obey, they're gonna they're going to go after it. I mean, well, I, that's I, true. That's true. But I mean, the history of playing out fantasies in childhood no, on animals. I think and fantasy like and animal abuse are two different things because you, yes. you can be abusive to an animal without it being a sexual thing. Exactly. I think where it takes on a, a fantasy element, a sexual element, it's more a hallmark of a of a serial killer type. In fact, I think you said and that you saw a hundred percent the the stats said a hundred percent of sexually motivated serial says. killers had some history of that. Yeah. yeah. I, I would actually want to see that database. That, that doesn't sound right to me. <laughs> yeah, and I'd like to see you know, it has a, a link to where the reference was and for some reason that page didn't it got cut off on my printer, so I can't even tell you what the study was that they got it from, but it's the link coalition. I think I have the article with the citation. I can send oh, it to, okay. to Catherine yeah. and Lee. Yeah. Yeah. And they actually, the link referenced you, Dr. Bricado, because you maybe tell people a little bit about your In the New Evil, the oh. people who may not be familiar with that book and the. Well, it, it, it's it, it's going to be a little difficult to do the quick version of this. So this is all I'll say. Mm-hmm. Michael Stone, my mentor, had. I think pretty famously created a, a a gradation for how shocking and excessive and cruel acts were. And so he conceptualized evil, a word that is commonly used when people see these acts, not so much in a religious way, but as a term having to do with the the excess and the way we react emotionally to the act. And so he had the sense that if we used people's reaction to it as a kind of a guideline, you can see that some acts are certainly worse than others. You know, killing someone out of jealousy is certainly lower on the scale than repeatedly torturing people and killing them, that kind of thing. And and so I think what the link talked about in the article they did was simply that they were pleased that when I edited what, for the New Evil, I did an edit of Michael Scale. We built it up. I talked to him about including animal abuses as shockingly cruel acts that should be included in category 16, or if there's a sexual kind of torture of animals to include it in 17, which which in Michael's scale was just about excessively cruel acts or sexualized acts against humans. And and they were really very happy about that because they thought that, you know, obviously it 
it shed a light on um, on how a lot of these people can demonstrate cruelty like that. And um, so that that's what it's about. Okay. Yeah. Definitely. It's great that that was included. And I have some questions here. Do you think, Paul, Paul Gabius, do you think that lack of morality can be an innate condition based on a myriad of developmental factors? Conflict. We, we, would, we would win the Nobel Prize if we had the answer to that one. Yeah. <laughs> you brought for me. Yeah, it's, it's, it's um, too broad. And... Also asking, how does your experience with these criminals affect your view of capital punishment? Kind of a different, little off topic, but if you'd like to answer, and, you don't uh, have to. Yeah, I, I to, prefer not to talk you about don't that. Have to answer. That, yeah. And also, okay, yeah. So you're you're campaigning for an all island animal cruelty registry in Ireland. Yeah, I would. Oh, well, that, I think that I think that's a great idea. Yeah. yeah, yeah, sure. An interesting thing to study a little further, it sort of makes me think, you know, and maybe in our research at Boston College, we can take a look at how many of our guys were were doing some of this stuff. I mean, like, for example, one of the things I, you know, a, a lot of people I think would be interested in is the relationship between domestic violence and animal abuse. And having a look at the literature, I wasn't too satisfied with the answer. I, I don't, I think it's not really very clear. Do either of you know, Anne or Catherine? If there's any really strong evidence about those two things being linked in any way, what do linked? What do you mean, like causally? Because one predictive of the other is domestic violence related to perpetrating domestic violence against a partner related to animal abuse. I mean, it seems like it would be, but is it shown in literature? The the literature I've seen shows that there, if there's domestic abuse in the home, there's a higher likelihood of kids potentially abusing animals because of the role model aspect to it and and the instability of the home, the emotionality of the home. But in terms of, I don't, I don't. Do you mean like somebody who's being abused, like a, like the wife or husband, is now going to turn that on the animal? I, I don't, I don't know the literature like that. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a little weak what we know about it in those areas. What do you think, Anne? Yeah, I haven't I, I tried to take a quick look at some of the literature. I didn't see anything that would speak to that. It's more of what I think Catherine said and more about if the child has been abused, that there's a more likelihood that they may abuse an animal. And that makes sense because they can be re, re, recreating it or whatever you want to call it. As a way, but I do think that I was rather interested in how many of uh, just a list when I just googled in uh, animal abuse and serial and and murders or something like that. A lot came up. The one that was most outstanding is an international case. It was the Anders Bering Brevik over in where is that? Over in Norway. Norway. He, Norway. What he, he would torment rats and put bumblebees in water so he could watch them drown. And neighbors had made it clear to keep their children had to stay away from him. They just don't come anywhere near him. And I think what that speaks to is that he would watch them die, even, you know, these bumblebees, I guess, and that the neighbors knew about it. The kids knew about it. So that's a pretty clear example, I think, of someone who probably over time there's certainly things in his background, but Gary, your suggestion to do a, a little study would be really quite interesting. It probably wouldn't be that hard. 
but to get the information about what they did, I mean, this the, it, it evidently is there. If, if we want to, and, and all of the school shooters, I was really surprised at how many. You've got Michael Carney, you've got Nicholas Cruz, you've got Andy mm-hmm. Golden. All of these shooters have done things, and it's sometimes with their own yeah, pet. Pinko. Yeah. Another one. So there's got to be a yeah, difference. There, there are certainly a lot anecdotally, but when we did the, oh. the large-scale well, database, we found yeah. it to be pretty rare but i but i think that there has to be something to it that we you know that, that since there's so many anecdotal cases yeah, i think the the case that that i was really going around in my mind when we were invited to do this and i i, I mean we just don't have the time to tell this whole story but i'll give you the short version is there's a, a very infamous offender called gary heidnick philadelphia-based and gary heidnick had an extremely cruel and emasculating father who would do things like, you know, because he was a bedwetter and the father felt that he had to humiliate Gary Heidnick to get him to stop wetting the bed. And he would do things like dangle him outside the window by his ankles or put his wet sheets or underwear on a flagpole outside the window so that everyone would laugh. And what happened is, and I think this is where it's so interesting, is that to start to get a feeling of taking it to getting his sort of sense of himself back, he started hanging animals, cats and other animals from trees. So you have a kid who's being hanged by his father out the window, now hanging animals. And then what happens with him, long story short, is is that he, after a whole series of separations from women that he had been involved with and children he had sired, he gets this million-dollar idea, he thinks, that he's going to create a hole in the basement, a pit in the basement of his home, and he's going to get intellectually disabled women from a home that are going to live in the pit by force and sire him a line of children who are totally devoted to him for life. So now he can't lose anyone anymore, right? And he winds up torturing one of the women to death by hanging her up, hanging just like that. And then when he's ultimately caught, he tries to hang himself in prison. In, in, in jail, that he tried to commit suicide by hanging himself. So I always thought there was something about that narrative arc where it's like a hot potato, right? Of like, dad abuses the kid, the kid takes it out on the animal, he takes it out on an adult, and then finally it comes back around to the original object of abuse. And I think that's just a beautiful illustration of where the animal torment, the animal torture, just has an, is an enormous signifier. And think about if somebody had said to him, what's the meaning of doing this? What are you trying to say? You know, that's what always bothers me about these narratives about these guys is where was the person who came in and said, why are you doing that? I think we saw that with Jeffrey Dahmer's dad when he was shocked to find things like Jeffrey Dahmer putting a crow in a box until he no longer hears hears the squawk, the squawk because it's died in the box or things like that. I mean, at some point, the father gets horrified and kind of talks to him about it. But that's the piece that that has always bugged me, and the intervention by someone who says, you know, and and Catherine, haven't you seen that to be missing in a lot of these narratives? I mean, someone asking, what what is this about? Why are you doing this? Yeah, I'd agree. You certainly would want to. Now, whether they ask it and it just doesn't get reported, I don't know. But I mean, it's it's a such right. a logical qu- statement. 
Do you think it's possible? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, it's just that maybe the point is that no one cared. Well, well I, I, don't, I don't know if that's around. true. And I, and I do think that in, in many instances, they're trying to minimize the malignancy. They're, they're trying to make it benign because they don't want to face what it means, not just for the kid, for the child, but for the whole family. But what kind of stain is it on them as parents? So they tend to think it's a passing phase that they'll get over or or they yeah. turn away from it and, and just not think about the the impact of it and, and how significant it is. I think you're going to see that more. And I think Jeffrey Dahmer's father's entire book was all about that. And he admits it. He kept minimizing things because he did not want to see what they meant. And for some reason, mm. Dr. Ransom, you went a little blurry. I'm not sure no. why, but I don't know if it's when you pull away, you, you might be might be trying to focus on you. But uh, this might be a little, two things. My husband did just post here. Thank you, husband. Some lawmakers in the state of New Jersey are trying to create a platform for businesses and organizations to easily identify animal abusers through an online animal abuse registry. And he also texted me in 2014, the New York City Council passed the Animal Abuse Registration Act. This act requires any adult convicted of an animal abuse crime after October 2nd, 2014 and residing in New York City to contact the health department. They have to be added to the registry. They're prohibited from owning, possessing, residing with, having custody of, or intentionally engaging in any physical contact with an animal. The registration period lasts for five years after sentencing, or if incarcerated for five years after release from incarceration, which is kind of concerning the short term of that. But there is Bark. I had somebody from BARC on the show. Maybe it was this summer. I'm not even sure. But that's a program for adults who have committed certain types of neglect would be one not not so much like severe animal abuse but it is a program they can go through and there does seem to be some effect for for some of these people but they may not be hardcore you know offenders but and can therapists really talk people out of doing these things? Does treatment work? So that's the big question here. I know Dr. Ranslin has to jump off in a couple of minutes, but that is the big question. Does treatment work? We've kind of touched on that, but what do you, what do you all think? Are you seeing hope in some of the literature at all? Or thoughts? Well, since I'm blurred out, I'm not going to answer because I'm not a clinician myself. So, so I, can't I don't know you. what happened. Were you, you were fine, and then I, I don't know. I, nothing happened to my camera. I'm not sure. That's so strange. Yeah. I haven't seen. I think if you just start it off and on again quickly, it'll deal. I know, but I'm work. I'm actually about it's to go. Anyway, so. Yeah. So. yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So I no, think sorry, this Ann. this might be a good point for me to take my leave and allow the other two to You're literally phasing out. Just I think, think Cameron's telling me it's time for me to go. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much. Well, we'll save without you, Kat. Thank, right. Thank you. Oh, no, our view will change. Oh, boy. Okay. So, Ann, you were about to say something? And, <laughs> uh, but, but, okay, <laughs> what was it? Dr. Ann. Yeah. I was going to get into, I really was intrigued and with this assignment of of trying to get into some of the literature and see and was surprised at how many and and it you don't know where they're getting their information about what some of these adolescent school shooters have done but anytime that it has some 
uh, example and some description, I think is, is wonderful. Uh, here's Nicholas Cruz. Now he was he, fairly recent uh, back in, uh, he did the Parkland, Florida shooting in 2018. And it was known that he did in elementary school. Now that's when, what, that's when you're in what, fourth, fifth grade. He began shooting squirrels and chickens as a teenager, killed frogs, tried to maim a neighbor's baby pot-bellied pigs and tried to crush animals trapped in, in rabbit holes. Now, that made me think of Ed Kemper, one of the serial killers who had, before he shot and killed his grandparents, they had got given him a gun to go out and shoot little animals. So where do you draw the line if this is, you know, something that's done, this is Montana or upper California, where it would be, but the grandmother would always admonish him for killing certain ones. And he, she would say, don't kill the, the, she didn't like him killing the birds, I think. And that it was okay if they kill a squirrel or something like that. Mm -hmm. But is that practice? I mean, I think, I don't know whether Gary, you've seen that in any of, of your, but it's really intriguing of where do you draw the line? And, and it, once you think across that line, how to how to intervene? I think that's what Anne you're trying to to get at, and maybe some of your viewers of, of when should you be concerned, and if you are concerned, what would you do, and who do we have that can do it? I mean, how many of us know a therapist that could has really in any way specialized with this? I don't know anybody that specialized with it, but I know that certainly therapists have been confronted with it. Yeah, I've certainly had over the years. I have had cases of people who tell me that they had been thinking, fantasizing about doing aggressive things, but that it helped that someone was kind to them. That on that particular day when they were ready to snap, somebody said hi to them or whatever, you know, and it it is very easy, especially when we conceptualize all these people as monstrous psychopaths, that they're kind of human with aberrations or a kind of amorality that isn't black and white, right? They can they can have friends and family and jobs and so forth and be a serial killer part of the time. And um that's what's so horrifying about it is that fragmentation, right? And and so some of these people will say, you know, it it actually, you know, it mattered to me that somebody was nice to me. You know, and um there are even there have even been cases, for example, in mass shooters that I looked at in the database where they would spare the people who had been kind to them almost as a reward. Mm -hmm. So you go around shooting and then like, you skip over the one person who was nice to you, that kind of thing. Right. And so that I think it's, it's very difficult for us to understand the importance of stable relationships for these people. And, you know, and, and that's the other thing that's always interesting to me is there are also serial killers who loved animals, but hated people. Who, who found the animals in their life to be very stabilizing and predictable. It was the people they loathed. And, you know, that's, a, that's another interesting thing. I mean, I, I also want to make the point before it goes out of my head, and I don't get to say it on this talk, is that I resent when people call very violent people animals. When they say, oh, oh he, he was just an animal. I don't really like that. I make that point on like the first page of the New Evil. I don't care for it because, you know, as Dostoevsky famously said, that that even if a tiger could 
nail a person up by his ears. He wouldn't. Only humans have that inventive cruelty. And because it's all about symbolism and leveling the playing field and all that stuff. For animals, killing is a purely practical matter. And so that I think that comparison is an insult (laughs) to some of these beautiful creatures, you know, and so I think you have to be careful about that. But, but then haven't you seen some that where the animals are actually a stabilizing force for them? They they love animals. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, one of the things you want to do with, especially with children who have perhaps been abused or neglected or whatever, is to give them a pet to have to care for because the pet, if they're good to to them are is going to respond and and so it can be a very positive healing kind of a situation so animals are very very important in 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 our lives and in people's lives so there is a program called green chimney the the, the stable relationship is what so many of these people are missing absolutely so that it's that that this thing that you know it just will never not love you right like for example right now a very hot case in the news of course is the idaho murders and and i have had a lot to say about those idaho murders and one of the questions that gets asked is why was kaylee's dog spared Mm -hmm. yeah right and i can't help but wonder if it's because and this is of course this person is innocent to prove guilty but i can't help but wonder if it's because a person who was so daunted by the unpredictability of relationships and people had a different attitude about animals. Remember, he was a vegan. Yeah. I mean, I, I always wondered maybe animals were predictable to him and, and he could love them. I don't know, but it's interesting to think yeah. about that the dog was spared, especially because it probably would have been pawing and barking in the middle of the murders. Right. And it, it was left. So that's really interesting, you know? Well, I, I've done a murder case where the animal, the dog, was found locked in, the, in a bedroom. And that seems really odd until you realize that one of the who who would do that, someone that the dog knew. And so when it came down to who was the suspect, was it the husband or was it a stranger? I think it became quite, quite interesting. So a dog or animals can, usually dogs can, can tell us an awful lot. I was going to go back to the original to see what your viewers think if they noticed it had fish and started noticing all these fish dying what they would do with it would they look into it because the story who this turned out to be it turned out to be someone who had been adopted and then found out that his mother when he found his birth mother had kept his sister but had given him up for adoption and the story goes that that's when he began his killing and he would kill he used a gun and would kill couples that were parked in a car and one psychological explanation of that was and i'm just i'm the messenger here i didn't say it but he said that he was killing women so that they wouldn't have children that would not be love them or something like that Mm -hmm. so it's from the very little bit oh well just some fish are dying all the way to this particular serial killer's outcome was uh quite interesting. And I'm sure, Gary, you've got many, many stories that you can tell about how oh, yeah. uh, animals are, are were used in, in the cases that you examine. Well, I think it's important to remember that about 
50%, it's estimated, about 50% of the serial killers of the type we mean, sexually sadistic, fantasy-oriented, ego-driven, motivated by a desire to, to dominate and control, manipulate, to level the playing field, you know, about 50% of them are of the slick Ted Bundy type, right? The That kind of, you know, almost like me- attractive, manipulative, kind of suave, you know, glib, but kind of but the other 50% are of the schizoid type. They're more odd. The kind of person that the whole neighborhood would say was weird. Isolative, peculiar, a little disorganized, except. And those people are the ones who tend to be more interested intellectually in cruelty. It's not so much sadistic as it is experimenting with animals or people to see what's inside of them. Kemper was something like that. Kemper was very curious about what was inside of things. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and could certainly talk about that. But you're talking about a person who would talk about it like we would say, I just want to see what happens. It's almost like the way some offenders talk about it is they'll say, I just don't feel very much. And I want to see what it takes to yeah. make a person feel yeah. how much pain do they need before they'll feel something. Because no matter what I went through, I never felt anything. The kind of a strange experimentation, and yet they see themselves as as doing this to animals sometimes to be cruel, but it's sometimes just to kind of see things like what they'll do, how they escape, what sounds they make, what you know, what happens to them when you touch them with fire, what's inside their bodies, you know, what happens if you keep their body parts, you know, etc. What happens when you eat them? There have been some schizoid, kind of bizarre, more bizarre serial killers that will eat animals. For example, Richard Chase, who was a a schizophrenic serial killer, had the belief that aliens were transmitting rays to his blood and putting powder inside his blood. So he needed to eat, you know, suck the blood of rabbits, cows, and other things by biting into them, and then eventually started to do it to people. And then killed several people. He was actually sort of caught by a friend of Evans and certainly a hero of mine. That was a Hazelwood case, wasn't it, Anne? Yeah, Roy Hazelwood. Yeah. yeah, and who wrote about it in a wonderful book called um, "We Who Fight Monsters." Yeah, and 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 I and I think you know what what I really want to drive home is the idea that we cannot paint with a broad brush that people who abuse animals are all of that on that sort of trajectory towards traditional right. serial killing there you have to go into an individual case and determine the meaning of it right. but i think it would be pretty safe to say that if you have a child who is abusing animals you may want someone to go in and find out why because some of them are abused i recently had to look at a case and there'll be no identifying information and i'm going to change this slightly but I, I, I was asked about a case that had happened some time ago of someone who had put an object inside of a dog, in, rectally inside of a dog. And when the person was questioned, they admitted that that had happened to them in childhood, that they had been a victim of parental abuse. And it was yeah. a way of sort of, they, they, were, they, they knew, they experimented with that kind of a thing, but they weren't violent they were abused. And and I think, again, I I cannot emphasize enough how important it is 
for someone to just ask <laughs> what this behavior is about. I mean, somebody had to find the hanging animals at the Heidnik yard, yeah. you know, and, and people saw that the father was abusing him. So, you know, I mean, and what you say, it's like a failure yeah. of. And it's a very simple question that you can say is, you know, what are you thinking when, when you do that? Or what do you, what, what, what does that mean? I think that that is just a basic kind of, a, or draw a picture if they're not terribly verbal and they're very young, see what they can draw for pictures. I see that one of these, Woodham, Luke Woodham, now he was out of Mississippi mm -hmm. and he kept a journal. Now that journal, I, I would be very oh, yeah. important to look at and to see. And in the journal, he evidently said that he had beaten his dog Sparkle with a club, doused her with lighter fluid, and set her on fire and threw her in a pond. Hmm. Now that's very specific, you know. Very so, specific. You know, I wonder. I'm Sounds like practice in. For, yeah. for eventually playing that out with a person. You know, Michael Stone and a lot of other people always thought that cats were a favored animal victim for serial killers because of their resemblance to females. Michael Stone always thought that, that the face of a cat was very feminine and that as a consequence, that they were a common object of hostility. It's an interesting idea. It's an old idea, but it's interesting uh, because I think one of the questions I cannot get an answer on from the literature and anyone who knows me knows this is like a Dr. Bricado question. It bothers me. I don't know the answer is I don't know statistically what the most common animals are that are tortured by serial killers. I can't answer that. So I want to know. And um, but it certainly looks like it's the typical animals that would be kept in a house. But but you know cats dogs you know yeah, yeah they rabbit, are weird, I would think things like that them. but oh. it would be interesting to see yeah if yeah. like Dahmer certainly went beyond and was skinning you know coyote things like that dogs you know and other kind of animals things that you could get out in the wild or he would keep the skulls that he found in the wilderness and sort of display yeah. them but but I think it's an interesting question and maybe we'll be the people to study it. Do you think that maybe to some extent it's um just because of availability and like not getting caught or just because of how easy it is, it might actually be insects and bugs they find outside and things like that could be maybe. Yes, right. Um, That's a good point. But you do hear yeah. a lot about like cats. Like using a magnifying glass. <laughs> Yeah, to burn yeah. them with a yeah. magnifying glass. Or, but a lot of kids do things like that. It yeah. makes them feel powerful. See, that, and that's, I was going to ask you, you know, two things. One, you, you, you mentioned, you know, if, some, if people would just, if someone would have just asked, this might be a little controversial, but there are, there's some studies, right, that show that this is potentially her, hereditary, some genetics possibly going on, and with this callous, unemotional traits, and maybe that puts them at risk of not having anybody ask because maybe possibly the they're not the the parent might not be if they're callous and unemotional themselves they're not reacting to these things the way that maybe others would that how do we know if it's genetic or if it's just that the personality traits of the people that you're exposed to cause you to sort of mimic what you're seeing around you. I don't know if it's necessarily genetic or just picked up, you know, monkey see, monkey do kind of a thing. But but I mean, wouldn't you say, and it's a, we wouldn't be able to tell, 
the the etiology of it from something like that. Yeah, I, I think yeah, trying to get into etiology is way way hard down the road to any of this. It, it, you haven't even gotten basic statistics. I think some of Dr. Picado's questions need to be answered first, and then then you could come yeah. up with hypotheses. Right. Do, do but you but I was horrified. But oh, oh, go ahead, Anne, please. Well, no, I was just curious. Do you think that there's any other behaviors, peripheral behaviors, not animal abuse? Like what kinds of things would people maybe, if they were really looking out, and this might not even be family members, it might be teachers, whatever, that might indicate that there's a problem in this kind of realm? Red flags. It's a great question for Anne and about, you know, antecedents to, to violence yeah. beyond it's animal abuse. Violence, I mean, there's yeah. a number of Right. Well, I think anything that shows negative, harmful, painful kinds of sta- even verbally statements how how are people talked about or or treated or something would would certainly be something that you might want to follow up on. And you know, I really do think that a famous psychiatrist once said, "Who knows their their children best?" And I think mothers do, and mothers maybe know more than they will ever tell, but there's got to be some way of helping mothers to talk about their concerns about their children, and that might be one way. Uh, mother's group or something like that, There, there's certainly got to be. I, I would love to have talked on some of our serial killers with the mothers of, of them. We talked with a few of them, but oh, yeah. uh, it would be very revealing. I think. Look at how many killed their mother. I mean, that's the other really scary thing. We just did a uh, study of Indian elder Indians where sons and grandsons had killed their mother, their grandmother. So something goes way back. Do you? I I, I think violent pornography, I think, is very important to look for. I have found that in adolescents who, you know, who are budding serial offenders, one of the first telltale signs is that fantasy drives them to look for visual depictions of of people being abused you know so for example in the rex hoyerman case the accused gilgo beach killer his search history contained things like children that had been beaten you know there was sort of violent pornography sexual assault women you know girls crying being sexually all mixed up right Imagine bouncing back and forth between looking at pornography and images of people being beaten or crying. I mean, so that I think what you want to look for is signs that the fantasy life is is demonstrating a fusion between violence and sex, that that's an outlet expression of violence. Because what I think is my sense is that before the discovery of sex as that outlet, animals are a pretty common one. It's almost as if like you you realize you could go out and do it to women or, you know, if you're a male offender, you know, because they tend to be heterosexual offenders targeting females, although there are certainly homosexual serial killers that target men, virtually no women or very few. You could count on a couple of hands who commit sexual homicide repetitively. But but it does seem that 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 there's this kind of process of needing more and more cruelty more and more of a thrill and the wide scale availability of violent pornography is a very dangerous it's a very dangerous thing 
it gets very addictive and then it gets boring because you've seen it all and then you need something more horrifying and more horrifying, just like what would happen with a drug, mm -hmm. which is not enough for you anymore. And this is what I'm just writing about it with Anne, you know, for, for a book we're doing on escalation. And I think that process of escalation yeah. is often about that, of needing more and more of a thrill. And wouldn't you say that offenders talk to you about that? Yes, they do. They are, they're, they're aware of it. There's no secret to them. Yeah. I agree. It does look like there's a study that I don't know. My husband is texting me and instead of putting in the chat, but this is in one study of Indispensable. Family. <laughs> like indispensable. Yeah. Everywhere at the same time. Keep up with him there, Anne. <laughs> in one survey, 71% of domestic violent victim, victims reported their abuser also targeted pets. Yeah. Researchers have found that pet abuse had occurred in 88% of families under supervision for physical abuse. <laughs> and every 60 seconds, one animal suffers abuse. Close to 65% of all abused animals are dogs. There you go, Aunt. There's your answer. Dogs are yeah. the preferred animal. It's very good that you found that. Uh, I would like to see the study, and, I, and it would be interesting to see the sample size and if it's anything we could replicate. But but it but it's interesting. I mean, there's always something to build on in previous research, and it might even be interesting to see who the authors are. That's how we we build our network of collaborators. Mm. I mean, anybody that's interested in that question is a friend of ours. That's a that's a that's our kind of topic. The Animal Legal uh, Defense Fund yeah. is very <laughs> up on these things, and and probably have a they have a lot of information. I'm sure the Animal Legal Defense Fund. They've been on this show actually before, but this this information is coming from the Humane Society site. It does say most often reported are dogs, cats, horses, and livestock, and factory farming. Wow. That's a whole other issue. Horses, that's extreme. And would you have expected horses on that list of most common? Well, I'm with you. What sample are they using that has a horse that they they can you know? Is I'm <laughs> curious about the data. Yeah, mm -hmm. like Catherine said, uh, we got to see the data. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that one was. Pretty you have to divide it into small animals and then large animals. I think that's that right. may be also important. Yeah. I do, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I know uh, well, one question that, w and I don't want to keep you guys too much longer. I know that we had a, we wanted to to get you out of here at a certain time, but wondering what is it like to do what you do? What's it? it oh, I teach. What and is it like to teach? <laughs> <laughs> Which part of it do you mean? We well, we do so yeah, many. I things, think I mean uh, more, <laughs> more the 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 interaction that you you have with individuals, and, and maybe maybe not so much currently. I don't know, but like you know, having to have had conversations with people about these things directly, who have done these kinds of acts. Well, it depends on how old they are and what they're in for. If they're, say, a convicted offender, serial killer, like yeah. we've written about, yes, that's that's always interesting to see if they'll be able to talk about it or volunteer it. If you're working with a group of children, young people, youth, that that's a whole different different matter. But to me, it's it's learning and it's it's adding to what to a knowledge base. Because there isn't, especially in this, there isn't that much out there. I think it's really important. I wish that we had asked that for all of our 36 serial killers. We only have some of that information, hearsay, if you will, from prior. 
So, and I, I don't always like to do that. I like to have some firsthand information, but I don't know. Gary had the same thing in his mass murderers. You had to rely on a lot of records and, and great if they had included it in a, in a intake, but they all didn't ask the right questions. I'm sure you know, it was 119 years of data. So yeah. it depended on when the cases, you know, right. stem from, I mean, what period, I mean, you know, media reports are all you have sometimes, you know, and you know how the media is with accuracy. You need to find multiple reports that say the same thing. For example, a, a newspaper could report on a mass murder the day it happened and say four people were killed. But then two days later, it's six people because more people have expired in the hospital. The facts change, you know, it's a moving, you know, thing. Well, I, uh, my answer to that is, is that I always try to bear in mind that it's sort of the way that a surgeon or a nurse, I mean, Anne is a, is a nurse, that has to encounter blood and gore and terrible things in the interest of saving a life. The, that you just sort of go through it to get to what you need. Because at the, at the what we, we always have to bear in mind is this work we're doing ultimately informs what law enforcement does and what emergency personnel do and how you know people profile and conceptualize offenders and go out and stop them. And the ultimate goal of it is to spare victims, whether they're human or animal or, you know, victims. And and for Anne and for me and certainly for Catherine, the emphasis is really always on that. I think we, we bristle with a kind of a horror and irritation at the emphasis that the public places on finding the offenders interesting. I mean, the reality is, is that they are of secondary, if any, importance in the story. We see them essentially as informational sources to figure out how to stop this from happening to people. That's really what it is. So that, and I think I always have to bear that in mind. And then I think to give a, a little bit more of a complicated response, <laughs> sometimes what's difficult about it is you go in expecting to encounter a kind of a diabolical colossus of evil and instead what you find is a kind of a pathetic small human that is sometimes able to attach to you very exaggeratedly or is seeking attention pathetically and sometimes you even like them and then you leave feeling horrible that you like them so much and you don't know why because yeah. there is a humanity in there. I have to tell yeah. you, there are a few of them. I have encountered some offenders that are so into this stuff day in and day out that you walk away from them and there is an almost foreboding kind of feeling of, of evil, you know, that kind of thing. But most of them are pretty fragmented and, and pretty pathetic, I have to tell you. And And basically what it boils down to is because of their needs or their mood or their fantasy or whatever, they have decided that they were entitled to pluck somebody's kid or an animal or somebody's friend or whatever out of the world. And we just don't want that to happen to anybody else. That's really mm -hmm. what this is about. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's difficult work. I mean, we're human beings. We see horrible things. But I think we take a clinical approach. We're pretty, we have to be clinical and detached or we won't get anywhere. What'd you say, Anne? I mean, it's very doctor-like. Yeah. You have to be able to, yeah. You'd have to you be, able. be able to. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it is. So. Mm -hmm. well, well, I, I hope this was interesting. Absolutely. And Absolutely. Yeah. Very interesting. I, I got into things I wouldn't normally get into. So certainly going to put that out 
So always check. It should be on ACES, I think. Wonderful. You know? we, we we really appreciate everyone in the chat is just saying how much they appreciate you you talking about this. And I think it is a conversation that's important. And like we talked about, you know, the registry, things like that. We need to do more for animals and protecting them. But getting to the root of this is is so important. And I really want to thank you, first of all, for being here. And also maybe just to end on a fun note, what's your favorite animal? <laughs> oh, dogs are my favorite. Yeah. Gary, yours. I, I have a I have a soft spot for a number of animals. I've always been a very big lover of elephants. I'm oh, crazy about oh, elephants. <laughs> I'm a very big lover of any large cat, mm-hmm. especially you know, panthers and jaguars and lions and so forth, the tigers especially. And yeah. and and I and I have a, a real soft spot for whales. I love them. I'm a big marine animal guy, but okay. but whales in general, they just fascinate me. I mean, there's something about them is so extraordinary. Yeah. You ever see a whale come out of the water? It's you never forget it. Yeah. So majestic, and you know, and so. But 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 I do want to say before we end. I hope that some of the people viewing will consider pet adoption. You know, good people in good homes have to remember that there is just a whole world of animals that are strays and, you know, that are born and, you know, mills and all this kind of stuff. And they're just, they're so adorable. Go look at them. You'll fall in love. You know, you'll, you know, they'll, they'll become the center of your life. And, and I think if you have a heart big enough for it, you know, I mean, cause it's, it's really tragic when you think about that, some of these places won't keep an animal forever, you no. know, and, and you, you know, you, you, you kind of give it a life, you give it hope, but, you know, and, and so if you have it in your heart, I, I really think it's important. I, I know everybody here would echo that. But, yeah. Well, yeah, and but, especially now, a lot of them are being turning up now. People are bringing them to the shelters because they adopted them during COVID working from home. Now they're getting called back to the office and the shelters are now getting overrun with mm-hmm. animals being sent back. So that's a very important message. Thank you for, for bringing that up. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, it was so nice to be invited. Thank yes. You. A good, good, very good uh, evening. Thank you very much, Anne. It was an honor to gave us a lot to think about. We have a lot yeah. to think about in our research. Yeah. I can't wait to, to hear about that <laughs> down the road. <laughs> Absolutely. So thank you so much. It was an honor to have you and and everyone in the chat. Thank you. And everyone watching the replay. If you do think of it, please like subscribe. I always forget to say that and share (laughs) and uh, to everyone out there. God bless and have a wonderful evening. My ears rub, I like my paws rub, I like my back rub, I like my tail rub, I like to relax, a massage and some snacks, it's my Rub my belly, rub my belly, rub my 